Hello everyone. It's always a joy to look up and see a nice full room, well, full as of uh, about a year ago <laughs> by comparison. Uh, let me just uh, remind you of a few things coming up in the life of our church. Uh, the first is that next Sunday is our next prayer meeting, monthly prayer meeting uh, for the year. And so that's 3 p.m. here, and it's a great opportunity to come together and pray for many things going on in the life of our church and for the gospel going out into the world. Uh, secondly, if you've joined us in the last few months or you've never been to one of our welcome lunches before, you are invited around to Phil's house in a few Sundays' time. Uh, for lunch, uh, free of charge for you to come and enjoy and meet some more people from our church and also hear what we're on about. And so uh, if you would like to come along to that, please chat to me or send me an email and we would love to make sure that you're included in the numbers so that uh, we can feed everyone. Next thing is that on that same Sunday, we'll also have our Vision Sunday, so our service at 6.30. We'll have that focus on fellowship that, that Phil and others have been talking about recently and so that's going to be a great time to think about the year ahead uh, and also think about what does fellowship and life as a church look like coming out of COVID. The last thing is uh, just a note in case you didn't see my email this week uh, this is the last week of our public Zoom uh, that's being streamed out to the world uh, and instead, if you are not able to be here in person, we can provide you with a private Zoom link. Uh, but the hope is that the vast majority of people will be able to meet with us on site here. And we have plenty of capacity here and in our overflow for all of that. Uh, that said, I, just a warning for those anyone who is on Zoom or who is in the overflow that we have had mild technical difficulties. If a camera drops out at one point, we apologize. Uh, I'm sure we'll just switch to another one. All right, let's pray, and we'll have, uh, please have Revelation 17, uh, 18 and 19 open in front of you. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, for your word again. We praise you for uh, the great comfort we receive from it, and we also thank you for the great challenge that we receive from it, even though it is confronting at times. It teaches us what we need to know, and so we pray that you would do that in our hearts tonight. Show us what we need to know from your word and help us to be shaped by it. Amen. In a previous life of mine, I used to watch lots of action and sci-fi and uh, thriller movies. I just love that kind of movie. I don't know about you, uh, but I love them. Uh, I don't really watch as many of those movies as I used to. There's a few reasons for that, but one reason is that Sarah doesn't really like to watch those ones. Uh, she likes to watch comedy or action comedy. She wants to watch movies that de-stress and relax rather than thrillers which leave you more tense at the end than when you started. Uh, well, as Phil and I have been saying over the last few weeks, Revelation reads a lot like a sci-fi movie or an action thriller or, or a fantasy movie. Maybe you found some of the stories and images uh, like that. Maybe you found that they seem vivid like a movie as you've read them. And they've left you maybe just as stressed and tense as a thriller movie would. This week's passage is no exception to that. Uh, there are crazy things going on in this chapter, in these chapters again. Uh, we're going to be dealing with uh, chapters 17 to 19, a really big chunk uh, in a short amount of time. Even though we only just read that little bit then uh, at the end of 18 and beginning of 19. 
But before we get into the action thriller sci-fi of Revelation and this big section we're looking at, first we need to play uh, Revelation Recap and remember a few things before we dive into our passage. First of all, we need to remember that now, from now on, Revelation focuses very much on the end. Earlier chapters of Revelation, remember, they were about the whole span between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. These last chapters, they focus very much on the end. The last day, Jesus' second coming. The final judgment and and the eternal realities of heaven and hell. So, in Revelation chapters 17 to 19, we get another picture, another story, and it's all about the end. The final judgment, the final salvation. Last week we looked at uh, chapters 15 and 16. We saw seven bowls of God's wrath poured out on the earth. This week we look at chapters 17 to 19. The fall of Babylon the Great. So today's passage is long, so we won't be able to explore it all. Perhaps you can dig deeper in your gospel teams, your small groups, during the week. Uh, And actually, we only read just that last part, so like I said, please have your Bible open so that we can you can follow along uh, and see what's in these chapters. The first thing we see in these chapters from chapter 17 is an introduction. We're introduced to Babylon the Great, and it reads a bit like a movie scene. Uh, You know, when the great villain turns up in the movie, uh, they're introduced that there's fearsome music. The camera focuses in on them and all their power and glory. Look at uh, chapter 17, verse 1. We get this grand and and fearsome and imposing image. Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, and I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who sits on many waters. So he carried me, verse 3, sorry, verse 3, so he carried me away in the spirit to a desert. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls. She had a gold cup in her hand, filled with everything vile and the impurities of her prostitution. On her forehead, a cryptic name was written, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the vile things of the earth. I told you, it reads a bit like a movie, right? We have this villain, this picture of a a woman on a beast, and she's a woman of unrestrained immorality. She's a prostitute, and she's adorned herself with fine clothes and jewellery. What does she do? She seduces the kings of the earth. The most powerful men in the world come and sleep with her. And she has them in the palm of her hand. They are drunk on her sexual immorality. They can't resist her power or her allure. It's a, vividing, it's a vivid and confronting image, isn't it? So who is she? Well, she's called Babylon the Great, the notorious prostitute. And we've actually met her in the last two weeks. In chapter 14 and chapter 16, she's mentioned, but just briefly. Here we get the full introduction to Babylon the Great. And we have some hints here of who she is, but then also we're told plain and clear who she is. Look at chapter 17, verse 18. And the woman you saw is the great city that has an empire over the kings of the earth. 
What city is the city that has an empire over the kings of the earth? Well, in the Old Testament, it was Babylon. That's why she's called Babylon the Great. This great human power, the Babylonian Empire, they took over the known world at the time. They defeated the kings of the earth and ruled over the nations. They were brazen and violent and immoral and callous. And they killed and captured God's people, Israel. That's who it was for God's Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament. But what about in the first century when John was writing? Well, by then, Babylon was long gone. And so you can imagine reading it and being like, well, Babylon hasn't existed, so what's he talking about? For those reading Revelation for the first time, back then, it was Rome. Rome was the great city with an empire over the kings of the earth. The Roman Empire took over the known world of that time. They defeated the kings and ruled over the nations. They were brazen, they were violent, they were callous, they were immoral. And Rome was the capital city of the empire. And so Rome is Babylon the Great. The center of the Roman Empire, the center of wealth and power and trade and immorality. So the kings and powerful men of the earth, they all come to Rome to make money, to get rich and to enjoy whatever pleasure that they can. That's why we get this image of the kings of the earth coming to this prostitute, Babylon the Great. That's where they came and indulged in everything they wanted to. And so Rome was the center of defiance to God. As people indulged in sin, as as the emperor demanded to be worshipped as a god. And Rome was also the center of violence and persecution against Christians. When they punished anyone who didn't bow the knee to the emperor, like everyone else did. But, as we've often seen in Revelation, some of the symbols have a first meaning, but they also have a bigger second meaning. That is, the images in Revelation are speaking about the real world events that Christians faced in the first century, but as well as that, they are images that point beyond the first century. And point to things that Christians face in all of history. And so Babylon the Great was the city of Rome, but but it's more than that. Babylon the Great, the notorious prostitute, is, is any human city who is opposed to God throughout history. It's any powerful city that becomes a center of immorality. It's all human powers and kingdoms that rise up to oppose God. And so what is Babylon the Great for us? It's not Rome anymore. It's New York. It's LA. It's, it's London. It's Singapore or Berlin or, or Moscow or Beijing or Baghdad or Melbourne or Sydney. All these great human cities of incredible wealth and trade and power, all of them in one way or another, They are places of opposition to God. They are places of incredible immorality. They are places of persecution against God's people. Because that's what human hearts, apart from Christ, are like. And a city is simply this. A big gathering of sinful human beings who join together in their sin. Who join together in opposing the God of the universe. 
You see, this is really, really important for Christians to understand. And I don't think it's something that modern Christians think very much about. You see, in one sense, the achievements of humanity, the great cities of the world, are a good thing. All people are made in God's image, and so they've been given God, they've been given abilities and creativity by Him. They've been given good endeavors to do, even wisdom for life and how to make money or how to be successful, how to do different things, how to, how to uh, heal the sick, all these things that humanity comes up with, they can be good. And God uses them to bless all he has made. And God uses them to bless his people. With the benefits of human invention and technology, don't we enjoy incredible physical and material and social and, and medical blessings in Sydney? I love living in Sydney. There's, there's an abundance of food, there's clean water, there's technology, there's schools and unis, stable government, welfare, entertainment, and more. But in general, we as Christians, our problem is not that we don't enjoy the things of our world and the achievements of humanity. It's that we don't thank God for these things. First of all, that's a massive problem. But secondly, we actually don't see that these things are not all good they are not simply neutral in one sense the the achievements of humanity can be a good thing but in another sense the achievements of humanity are not a good thing wealth is gained by corruption governments take advantage of the poor and weak science moves forward and ethics are ignored unrestrained sexual immorality is normal Unborn children are murdered, the old and sick are left to die. And people indulge themselves in the wealth of their city and they give themselves over to the pleasures that they enjoy each and every day. And God, most of all, is blasphemed. He's looked down upon, his his word is ridiculed. His people, believers in Christ, are persecuted. Sometimes they simply face mockery, but other times... They face violence and oppression. The great cities of our world might look like beacons of light. Maybe they are in some ways. But they are also places of shameful darkness, of sin, of greed, of arrogance, of corruption. Often we as modern Christians, we simply enjoy the benefits and the wealth and the prosperity of our city instead of mourning the evil that our city produces. I love living in Sydney, but maybe I love it too much. Maybe I need to remember, as I'm sure you do, that Sydney, in many ways, is like Babylon the Great, a city of great immorality, a city of great opposition to the God of the Bible. So we've been introduced to Babylon the Great in this vision. And the vision goes on, and if you just look over chapter 17, verses 7 to 18, if you just look there, we'll we'll not look at it in detail, the vision goes on to explain the meaning of some of these things that John sees. We don't have time to go into it, but what's the point? It's saying that that there are seven or eight kings, and these are probably emperors who rule in Rome. And at some point there'll be this division, the Roman Empire will crack, And it will attack itself, and it will self-destruct. And then the story, it moves on to our second part. Now that this has happened, 
Babylon the Great, it has fallen. And we see the fate of Rome and the fate of all great human cities. I wonder if you've seen any of those movies from the Has Fallen series. Uh, Olympus has fallen, London has fallen. I think I've only seen one, and uh, I, I don't think it was that great. And they're actually quite violent, so I actually wouldn't uh, encourage you to, to watch it. But there's this series of movies where there's a significant city or landmark, and the enemies have invaded it and taken it over. It has fallen to the enemies, and so the city, well, it's in crisis. And there's, uh, there's this hero, and it's the story of him fighting back all on his own to save the city, to get the enemies out of there. In the end, he wins, and the city is saved. Everything goes back to normal again. There's three of these movies, and apparently they're making three more. I think it's safe to say that most of them are probably not worth watching. Sorry if you like that kind of movie, but I'm actually not sorry about that. Here in Revelation 18, it says, Babylon the Great has fallen. The great human city has been defeated. But in this story, there is no hero to come and save the city. The city is not saved and it never returns to normal again. Look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 18. Another angel cries out, It has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. It says now it's desolate. It's a place for animals and demons to wander. And then it gives the reason why Babylon has fallen. Verse 3. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her excessive luxury. What is it saying? It's saying God has judged this city. His wrath, which we heard about last week, his wrath has fallen on the great human city. And it has come to an end. Why? Well, this verse and the rest of the chapter tells us over and over again, God's wrath has fallen on Babylon the Great for these two reasons, her sexual immorality and her excessive luxury. If you look down the rest of the chapter, you'll see those two phrases come up over and over again, sexual immorality and excessive luxury. What do they represent? Well, in one sense, they can mean exactly what they say. The city of Babylon, or Rome, then, was the place of great sexual immorality. The place where excessive luxury was the goal. Sexual immorality, that is, sex that is against God's good design for sex. His design is one man and one woman bound in marriage for life, and anything outside of that is sexual sin. And that was enjoyed and celebrated in Babylon, in Rome. An excessive luxury, living it up on the wealth of the city, spending everything for the pursuit of pleasure or power, whatever the cost. And again, that's what people did in Babylon, in Rome. In one sense, it's literal, but these are also images. Because in the Bible, sexual immorality, excessive luxury, these are symbols for idolatry of worshipping false gods, false gods like the Roman emperor or the gods of, the, of Rome, or worshipping pleasure and self and chasing every desire of your heart. Rome led the way 
of the rest of the world in these things. And I can't help but think about the great cities of our world today. Can you? What are the great cities of our world on about? They're on about sex. They're on about luxury. Idolatry and pleasure. Self and personal gain. But God says, because of her great sin, Babylon will fall. And that's what we see time and time again in chapter 18. Uh, Look at verse 5. It says, For Babylon's sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Or verse 8, For this reason her plagues will come in one day. Death and grief and famine, she will be burned up with fire, because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. And then we get this image of a city ablaze, burning up in a huge fire. And as the smoke rises into the air, the people far off look. They see the pillar of smoke rising into the air and they look at verses 9 to 20. They, they mourn. Verses 9 to 20, the kings and merchants and sailors and all those who got rich off the city, they mourn. They mourn their great loss. They say, Oh Babylon, all the riches and goods and wealth you had are gone. No one will ever enjoy them again. Your judgment is final. And then there's this uh, repeated phrase. It comes up three times. They say, In a single hour, in a single hour, your judgment has come. Babylon, as great and mighty and rich as you were, In just a short time, just an hour, it has all come to nothing. And so yet another angel turns up and he declares, have a look at verses 21 to 24, where we're racing through the story. We read there, verse verse 21 to 24, the angel says, never again. Over and over again, he says, never again. Babylon has been thrown down and she will never Rise again. Never again will your riches or pleasure be enjoyed again, Babylon. Never again. So what's the point of all this? When God's judgment falls on Babylon the Great, it will be final. It will never rise again. Babylon will not last forever. Her great evil will one day be punished. And so Rome, her great evil, was punished. The Roman Empire ceased and it has never risen again. And one day, when our Lord Jesus returns, God's wrath will fall on all great human cities. Whatever great city, whatever great human power that rises up in history, none of them will win, none of them will last forever. All of them will fall all of them will face God's righteous judgment for their sin. They will never rise again. Yet again, this is a picture of the very end, of the very last day. Like we saw last week, this is a picture of God's wrath completed. Everything that needs to be done will be done. All sin will be dealt with fully, finally, and justly. Our great human cities, with all their splendor, will fall, never to rise again. 
Shouldn't this shape the way that we see the world around us? Shouldn't it shape the way we see and live in our city, in our culture? There are so many wonderful things about our city. We are blessed beyond measure by God to live in this place. But Sydney, if it still stands when Jesus returns, Sydney and all its immorality and all its opposition to God will be judged. It should make us careful, shouldn't it? Careful not to join in with the sin and worldliness that is just around us. And it should make us zealous to share Christ so that more can turn to him, know the love shown at his cross, and so be saved from God's coming wrath. But then it doesn't end there. The scene suddenly and drastically changes and we get chapter 19. The last part of our passage, the marriage feast of the Lamb. You know in movies where at the very end there's, there's often a wedding scene, isn't there? Uh, as the story climaxes and the hero wins and the bad guy's beaten, it then fades to black and then it fades back up on a beautiful wedding scene. The two main characters, they're getting married and you know it's outside on a green lawn with a, with a beautiful view over mountains and the minister says, now I pronounce you husband and wife and there's cheers and tears and, uh, you know, they've overcome this great obstacle, so now it's about love and peace and, uh, and celebration. It's a beautiful, happy ending. Maybe you've realized I'm a bit cynical about movies sometimes, and uh, maybe I am. Uh, but now, that's a little bit what we get here, except it's better than any movie. Look at chapter 19, verse 7. It says, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give God glory, because... The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. Here we get this wedding scene. We get this picture of God's people, the wife of the Lamb, the wife of Jesus. And so those who follow Jesus, they've been saved out of the world, and now they are united with their bride. They are the wife of the Lamb of Jesus, who died for us. Just like we saw it last week, God's people will be shielded from his coming wrath. They are saved and safe in heaven. And so now, Jesus and his bride, his church, his people are united and they are together for all eternity. And it's a beautiful wedding feast that we get pictured. Except it's also a bit like a victory march. A celebration after a war has been won because, look at these confronting words, look at verse 1 of that chapter. 19 verse 1. After this I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, praise God. Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. Why? Because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute. And then verse 3, even more vivid. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. You see, just like we saw last week, God deserves praise for all his mighty acts, for his true and righteous ways. And on the last day, those who are with him, they will stand and they will praise him before his throne for his acts of judgment, for his work of justice, putting all things right. 
and judging the world as it deserves. And even as his wrath makes us squirm and makes us uncomfortable, the problem is not with his wrath. No, he deserves to be praised for his works of justice. We don't have time now, but the story actually goes on and and the groom arrives. Jesus appears at the wedding feast. Uh, But you have to read it yourself or wait till next week when we look at it then. But let's bring it together uh, briefly now to close for this week. What do we see in this part of Revelation? We see the coming judgment of God on Babylon the Great, on the great human cities of our world because of their immorality and their opposition to God. And we see the great and wonderful marriage feast of the Lamb when we will meet Jesus and be united with him for all eternity. Safe because he was slain for us and secure because of his victory. Yet again, it's, it's the same message as we've seen every other week, isn't it? Just like all of Revelation, the message is Jesus wins. And our response? Keep trusting him. Don't give up. And in this passage, we see that really clearly in two verses. Look at verse uh, 14 of chapter 17. It's coming up on the screen, actually. It says, People will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them. Jesus wins, because he is the Lord of lords and King of all kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Jesus wins. And so our response is, keep being faithful. Don't give up. And we see again so wonderfully, chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. It's on the screen again. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Jesus wins. And our response, the wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. See what it's saying? It's an image, but it's saying Jesus wins in the end. And so our response in the meantime is to prepare ourselves, to prepare ourselves for the wedding day, for him, to keep trusting him, to keep living for him, to keep striving to do the righteous acts that he has saved us to do. So that one day, when he returns, When God's just judgment falls on this world, we will be found dressed and ready for the groom, wearing the fine linen of faith and and godliness. Will you be there? That's the question it asks. Will you be there? Will you, along with the rest of the saints, be ready for that day? Let's pray that we would all be there then on that day. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for your word. As it confronts us, help us to repent of the sin that we need to. As it encourages us, help us to turn in faith and hope to the Lord Jesus who died for our sin and rose again that we might have that eternal life that we see pictured so wonderfully here. May we be ready for that great day, that wedding feast, when we are united with the Lord Jesus and spend eternity with him. Amen.